This is Music You Can Find, a weekly discussion about some of the most interesting albums out recently. I'm Charlie Dumont Wildey. It's the week of January 13th, 2020. Today I'm going to be talking about my 10 favorite albums of the 2010s. These are the albums that impacted me the most, the albums I kept coming back to, and the ones that I'll think about the most as we move into the next decade. As with my other lists this year, this will be in no order, but I am going to be picking an album of the decade. I'm going to kick things off talking about a group I'll often say is my favorite band in the world, Brockhampton. These guys exploded onto Hip Hop's Underground in 2017, first releasing a series of singles along with lo-fi, very creative, self-produced music videos before dropping three incredible albums, Saturation 1, 2, and 3. They quickly built a huge and devoted fan base, and while navigating the tumultuous waters that often come when young musicians gain success as rapidly as they did, Brockhampton kept working on good music, culminating in this year's Ginger, which is a raw, emotional, and incredibly artful piece of music. For my pick, though, I'm going to go with Saturation 2. The Saturation Trilogy is an almost unmatched accomplishment in music history. This was just a group of guys who got together online and started to work together as a group. They were living in a house together when they worked on this music. They've got rappers, singers, beatmakers, producers, videographers, graphic designers, all as part of the band. They never used the term collective, opting defiantly to identify as a hip-hop boy band. They combine catchy, poppy hooks, hard-hitting and gritty beats with all-out experimental weirdness in a perfectly honed combination that, man, it just hits the sweet spot for me. Their chemistry is magical. Their creativity is off the charts, as is their work ethic. They've got this immaculately conceived sense of aesthetic that feels both meticulously planned and ramshackle, scrappy, and improvised. They're constantly sifting through new ideas. Members step effortlessly in and out of focus of the songs, and it's all essentially hinged around the central hub of Kevin Abstract. As often as they are silly or braggadocious or aggressive, the band explores honest and personal themes with intimate lyrics speaking to their experiences as young people in today's world. This generation has seen a number of musicians pushing hip-hop to include new voices and points of view, and I think Kevin Abstract is a great example of that, with music that speaks to his experience as a gay rapper. Saturation 2, I think, is just the purest vision of this band. It builds on what Saturation 1 established. It had the same scrappy DIY energy to it, and I think it's just my favorite collection of their songs. Man, in 2017, I just I couldn't get enough of these guys. And the way and the idea that they recorded, produced and released three albums of this amazing quality in in just a period of about 6 months is unbelievable. I was raving about them at every party I went to. I apologize to anybody in earshot who who ended up on the wrong end of that stick. Following along with their development has just been such a thrilling journey. The experience of anticipating those albums and devouring them as they came out was one of the most exciting things to happen in music this decade. I love these guys so, so much. 
and there's no way I'm not going to include them on a best of the decade list. Brockhampton and my pick, Saturation 2. Now, it's a common refrain in the music world that punk is dead. That's the thing you hear. And sometimes, in some places, maybe it is. There's obviously great punk music coming out, but a lot of it is music that sounds like punk or looks like punk, but lacks the important subversive quality of punk because it just isn't new or radical anymore. I still like a lot of that stuff because it sounds like the punk I like, and I'll have fun listening to it. My next pick, though, is a group that sounds like punk and looks like punk, and it is punk, right down to the bones, past the aesthetic and right into the core. The band is Gloss, and I'm going to say, maybe this is cheating, I'm going to say their whole discography, which includes the 2015 demo and the 2016 EP Trans Day of Revenge. Gloss, which stands for Girls Living Outside Society's Shit, is a trans-feminist punk band, and this is without a doubt one of the most essential punk records maybe of all time. It speaks to exactly what punk is supposed to be and what it can do. This album is angry, but more than that, it is energized. It knows that the world is wrong, but it's convinced that there's something that can be done about it. There are themes pretty common to punk, like police brutality, something that unfortunately has been a relevant topic for the entire history of punk as a genre, and something that unfortunately will come up a number of times as we move forward in my list. But what really makes Gloss matter is their frank discussion of gender as a band comprised mostly of trans women. Their anger isn't just directed at square society, but also at the punk scene, which is foundationally supposed to be built on acceptance and providing a space for the outcast and the marginalized, but that too often ends up being exclusionary and predominantly made up of white, cis, hetero men. And here's the thing. That would be an important message to speak out in the punk community, but it's not going to be an essential record without the music. And gloss, have it, they deliver. Their music is tight, the edges are so hard, the performances are perfect. This is hardcore punk at its best. It rips. And for what it's worth, they have a song called Lined Lips and Spiked Bats, and that's just got to be the best song title of the century. Gloss are not interested in meeting you halfway. They are not interested in being appealing or compromising. But if this is on a frequency you enjoy, it is some of the best punk music ever recorded. Unfortunately, the band split up. Despite being met with success during their initial run, they did what was best for the individual members of the band from an emotional and mental standpoint, and I respect the decision, even though I I just wish that there was more to look forward to. I know that this is a band that meant a lot to the people who this music was for. I know they were successful in creating a space where trans and non-binary people can feel comfortable, and they created music to help individuals cope with living in a world that still isn't very accepting of the transgender community. I obviously am a white, straight, cis man in the punk scene, so I know that I'm speaking from a place of privilege, but thank God punk rock has bands like Gloss to keep the genre important. Gloss were one of the best, and their discography needs to be remembered as we look back on the decade. All right, up next is Sturgill Simpson and his 2014 album Meta Modern Sounds and Country Music. Sturgill Simpson was instantly recognized as an incredibly talented musician in the outlaw tradition. I mean, he even sounds a little like outlaw legend Waylon Jennings, and, you know, that doesn't hurt. 
But I think that lulled people into this idea that he was just doing throwback country. And that just never was the case. His albums strayed further and further from country with each release, up until this year's Sound and Fury, which hardly sounds like country at all. That foundation was all laid out here, six years ago, with metamodern sounds. You barely have to go further than the title to see what's going on here, what he's busying himself with. The first track is called Turtles All the Way Down, and it explicitly talks about doing psychedelic drugs, ego death, and Buddhism. Sure, his band plays country music instruments, and of course there's his voice, but there's also a cover of the British new wave band When in Rome. What I'm saying is this album is not interested in being throwback country. It's progressive, psychedelic, and boldly creative at every turn. This one, I think, strikes the perfect balance using recognizable country sounds and songs to carve out this wild, drugged-out place in the genre that's more interested in discussing philosophy than, you know, mourning over a lost lover or, or talking about how much they love a truck. There are gentle ballads, hard-rocking honky-tonk numbers, and everything in between. It's a great record full of great songs from front to back. I'll always say there's great music in every genre, and that includes country and even mainstream country. I know picking Sturgill Simpson is the hipster country's choice. This is the country music that people on Graham Ave and Williamsburg will know, but look, it's my favorite. I think it's the best. It's got such a firm grasp on the genre, such respect for the history of it, and such willingness to do something interesting with the template. 2016's Sailor's Guide to Earth is also a great record. It's got the Dap Kings as a backup band, and it was emotionally very resonant for me because it's about fatherhood and it came out a few months before my daughter was born. But his best album, as far as I'm concerned, has to be Metamodern Sounds in Country Music. I think it's pretty darn near a masterpiece. If you didn't have Whiplash going from Gloss to Sturgill Simpson... My next pick is weirdo rapper Danny Brown, and what is so far the crowning achievement in his amazing career, the 2016 album Atrocity Exhibition. This album is dark, and it is challenging. Danny Brown uses that cartoonish, nasal vocal delivery that is going to make people check out before they even get in the front door. And I think this is one of the best realized, the highest quality, the most varied, and the most coherent experimental albums ever made. It's it's bleak, and it's mired in bleak subject matter. Drugs, violence, addiction, depression, but in its haze, there's a dreaminess. There's a mesmerizing quality to it. The sounds used on this just don't exist anywhere else in the world of hip-hop. There's nothing else that sounds like this guy. He's using a lot from Rock and Roll's palette on this album. I mean, the title of, of the record is a reference to Joy Division, but it's morphed into something that's not recognizable to rock or hip-hop. It doesn't sound like anything outside of the most avant-garde corners of the popular music world. His lyrics are off-the-wall, weird, rhythmically hard to pin down in his performances, but they're also funny, clever, charming, which, which are words that maybe up until this point in my description wouldn't have even made any sense. There are so many high points. The song When It Rain... The song When It Rain seems to be about just dancing at the club with lyrics like when it rains, when it pours, get your ass on the floor. But maybe he isn't talking about the dance floor, but ducking for cover when it starts to rain bullets. There's the track Really Do, which puts Ab Soul, 
Earl Sweatshirt, and Kendrick Lamar all in the same place. So good. This is an album that I've listened to over and over, and I never stop finding something to be fascinated by. I'm captivated by it. It's an incredible work of art. Danny Brown is approaching hip-hop in a way that is completely avant-garde and still funky and danceable. He's still got a lot of career ahead of him. He just released an album this year that is also great, and I'm sure there's another masterpiece still to come. As it stands, I think the greatest artistic statement from this great artist is Atrocity Exhibition. Okay, next up I'm going to talk about Sometimes I Sit and Think and Sometimes I Just Sit, the perfectly titled 2015 debut full-length from Courtney Barnett. I think this is kind of a perfect record. I like it so much. Courtney Barnett applies the musical vocabulary of punk rock to her poetic and almost novelistic brand of indie, and the results are fresh, bracing, and endlessly fun. Obviously, she's not the first artist to add some rock and roll noise to indie, and she's far from being the only one to do it or do it well this decade. We had great stuff from the likes of Mitski, who added some guitar heroics to her indie singer songwritery stuff. Courtney Barnett just nails the combination, though, in a way that rises above anyone else in the category, I think, especially on this record. The songs are simple and punchy. Her drab vocals are delivered with pitch-perfect sardonic bite. And of course, the more and more you listen to it, you, you realize the star of the show is her songwriting and her lyricism. She truly has a storyteller's attention to detail. Her lyrics are so clever, they deliver so much insight, and they draw you into their world. I really just love the way she'll, she'll line up all these little details and create a scene. She's, she's like Hemingway. Pedestrian at Best is one of my favorite songs of the decade, and the whole album is truly full of highlights. Elevator Operator, Depressed In, Nobody Really Cares If You Don't Go To The Party, to name just a few. This is a vibrant and essential record that shows there's still life in the rock and roll formula. I don't have too much to say other than that. This is another album I listen to over and over. It's just such a treat. If I'm ever out and I hear a song from this album, or if I hear someone else talk about it, it'll just make my whole day. Such a charming record. I think it's unmissable. Sometimes I sit and think, and sometimes I just sit by... Australian indie rock artist, Corny Barnett. One of the most important and obviously divisive figures in music this century is Kanye West. His albums in the 2000s were radical. They sort of woke hip-hop back up after a bit of a creatively uninteresting period, I'd say. His output continued to evolve with the most drastic change coming in 2013 with Yeezus, an album I really, really like. For a lot of this decade, his best work has been in production, which has maybe always been the case to an extent. He's an incredible musician, and that shines through most in his sounds and production. For me, Life of Pablo was his worst album when it came out, until he released Ye, and I think that's still his worst release. But it was one of the projects in the Wyoming Sessions, a series of albums recorded in Wyoming, and released somewhat chaotically week after week for six weeks in 2018. It was a really exciting time. You can hate Kanye all you want, but the man knows how to manipulate hype. When I look back at those releases, they are, they're all interesting and they all have positive qualities, but two stand out as being truly great. Pusha T's Daytona and my pick for this spot, one of my ten favorite albums of the decade, Kids See Ghosts. Kids See Ghosts is a collaborative project between Kanye West and Kid Cudi, and I think it is among the best work either have ever done. The two add so much to each other, 
and they also keep each other's worst tendencies in check. The whole thing clocks in at just over 23 minutes, and it leaves you wanting more, but it still feels complete. I love its brevity. I think it's a bold choice in 2018. This was the same year as Migos' 108-minute monstrosity, Culture 2. On Kitsy Ghosts, Kid Cudi and Kanye West both meditate, open up, and explore their mental health in a way that is introspective and also really triumphant. The samples are just bonkers in the way only Kanye can do. The beats are creative and compelling. The songs are interestingly structured and unpredictable, and guests are strategically and well-used. I think, unfortunately, Yasin Bey's verse is a little clunky, but to be honest, it still kind of works for me in the context of the track. Similar to things I've already talked about, this album uses psychedelic music in its vocabulary more than the types of sounds we'd associate with being traditionally hip-hop. I don't think I'd really call this a hip-hop record at all. Kanye, for one, supposedly submitted the track free for Grammy consideration as a rock song. And, you know, listen to that song and you can't disagree. It's, it's a psychedelic rock song, even though the vocalists are Kid Cudi, Kanye West, and Ty Dolla Sign. This is Kanye at maybe the peak of his creativity, at the peak of his mastery in the studio as an engineer and a songwriter, and this is, this is the most cohesive album of his this decade. I think it's just the best thing he did. The music reminds us that Kanye is a genius without match, and the lyrical content reminds us there's a human being inside there, behind all the antics. And all, all of that downplays Kid Cudi's contributions, who, who delivers what might be the best performance of his career, if you take this piece as a whole. This is as much his album as anyone else. Cudi has spent so much time making these sprawling and bloated albums, some of which I, I still really liked. And he'd been playing around with alternative rock sounds, but the formula just, just works here in a way that he never really nailed individually. It's so concise, so efficient, it's so great. It needs to be heard. I think if you're skipping it because Kanye is so difficult to grapple with as far as he handles himself publicly and the problematic things he's done this decade and the red hats he's worn, I get it. It's been rough. But if you skip this album, you are missing out. This is Kid See Ghosts by Kid See Ghosts, 2018, one of the Wyoming albums. My next pick is the album of the year from 2018, Dirty Computer by Janelle Monet. Chanel Monet is an incredible artist with a distinct vision that combines sci-fi futurism. It combines sci-fi futurism with vintage genre sensibilities using sounds from traditions of soul, funk, and R&B. She kicked off the decade with Arc Android 2010, a masterpiece in its own right, which is an operatic concept album with a sprawling narrative. She created a world on that album and a persona, Cindy Mayweather, that she further explored on the incredible 2013 Electric Lady. I absolutely love Electric Lady. When it came out, I didn't understand why it wasn't blowing up the whole world. I couldn't figure out why everyone else wasn't freaking out about it. It was so fresh and radical sounding, but it still sounded so familiar, like it had always existed. It sounded like music I had grown up listening to, but it still was like nothing else. sounded brand new. Then came Dirty Computer. It's every bit as high concept, futuristic science fiction that the rest of her catalog is, but this one is much more personal. Obviously, Janelle Monet was in all those other records. They were personal records, but they were hidden inside these conceptual narratives. Dirty Computer is a lot more upfront about it. It's her most intimate album by far. This is an album that explores themes about race, 
notions of freedom or oppression, and most overtly, sexuality. This is a sex-positive and very empowering queer album. She's exploring gender fluidity and sex in a lot of different ways. And the music is, I think, the best in her stunning career. It's so funky, so creative, so perfectly produced and composed. This album owes a lot to Prince, who worked on some of the tracks before he passed. She really is the heir apparent to Prince, or, or to David Bowie, in the way that she is synthesizing ideas from tons of different genres and scenes and into something radical sounding, and, and in the way she's creating this futuristic space that's carved out and designed specifically for people on the fringes of society. This album is just great track after great track. There are so many memorable moments, so many powerful messages. I love what this record has to say, and I'll remember it fondly for the experience of listening to it. It's also accompanied by the Emotion Picture, a sci-fi film that frames a bunch of music videos for the songs, and it, it's also a treat. If you haven't, if you like this music and you haven't seen it, I, I urge you to check that out, see if you can find that. It should still be on YouTube. Janelle Monet is an incredible musician with so much vision and control over her art. This is an album like no other, and it's definitely a decade-defining release. This next one is definitely a Desert Island pick. It's an absolute favorite record of mine. Run the Jewels 2 from Run the Jewels. This album, it's just too too good. To put it simply, I think this is the best of the best things about great hip-hop. The beats are creative and hit hard. The rapping is aggressive, rhythmically gymnastic, and endlessly clever. It's swaggering, it's angry, and it's funny. Every song just grabs hold of you and forces you into its frequency. This album came out in October of 2014, one year after the Black Lives Matter movement began. 2014 saw an increased awareness of a string of murders by police of black Americans. In 2015, there were riots in Baltimore due to the injustice around the killing of Freddie Gray. To put it lightly, there was a pervasive atmosphere of unrest in a lot of the country. I remember spending a lot of time back then just feeling angry and helpless. This album, more than anything else, gave me an outlet, and it gave, me, and more than that, an energy to try and change things. It gave me a soundtrack and, and a template. There are songs about racial injustice in different forms, the economic disparity that's often tied to race, and also, of course, police brutality. Killer Mike isn't just one of the most skilled rappers of his generation. He's one of the most philosophical thinkers. He's engaged directly in his community. LP isn't just a great rapper. He's one of the most aggressive producers in rap history. These songs are the hip-hop equivalent to getting punched in the face. I was talking to a buddy of mine, and he described their music by saying it makes you feel like you can run through a wall. That's the best way to describe it. There's just so much force to these tracks that no one else can match. The songs are part dance club beats, thrash metal noise, and, and experimental rhythms, but it's all crushed and compressed into the shape of a bullet. And together... These two guys love each other. They're buddies in this way that is really kind of adorable and endearing, and their chemistry shines through on the recording and in live performances. And like I said, it's funny. It's always funny. Even on the angriest tracks, there are jokes. And there's this off-kilter love song that starts off sort of sounding like a pastiche of rap's objectification of women, but then Gangsta Boo comes on the track, and she reverses it, and man, it's, it's perfect. 
Killer Mike has been around for a while. He used to feature on Outcast tracks, and, and he wasn't a young guy back then, necessarily. He's been so good for so long, and finally, with this project, and at this point in time, everything is lined up for him to get the success he's owed, the, the credit he deserves, the fans he deserves. I love Run the Jewels, and their greatest, most efficient, most exciting, and most relevant album is Run the Jewels 2. I'll never forget it. The last album I'm going to talk about before we go into the album of the decade is an album I don't have a broad cultural conversation to have about its significance. It's just now my love, more than almost anything. It's the 2013 album Secret Songs, Reflections from the Ear Mirror by Nobody. Look, I don't know what to say. This is my favorite garage punk album. Maybe ever. Is it? Could be. The songs are perfect. It kicks off with Bye Bye Roxy, and that's one of the best garage rock songs ever recorded. It's one of the best album openers ever, and just every single song, they're all so good. Punk can be about a lot of things. It can be about rebellion. It can be about finding or creating a space for people to belong who may not have that space otherwise. It can be about what's wrong with the structure around us, but it can also just be about having fun and smashing the furniture. That's what this album is. It's about putting on boots and stomping through the floor. It's about jostling and pushing each other in a big crowd of people wearing the same denim vest. I don't care. Punk can just be energetic and loud and joyful and sexy and dirty. And this is just all of that. It's got a great amount of variety through the track listing. Every song brings something new to the table, and each one is a home run. I got to see No Bunny a year or two ago, and he's still performing in that ratty, gross rabbit mask he's been wearing throughout his whole career. And of course, by the end of the concert, he's wearing just the mask, black leather jacket, and a pair of sweaty briefs, and that's it. That's a blast. It's pure. This is the best, and I love it more than anything. No Bunny, the album is Secret Songs, Reflections from the Ear Mirror. And here we are. The end of the list, the end of my discussion of the 2010s. In my mind, there's no way the album of the decade can be anything other than To Pimp a Butterfly, the 2015 masterpiece from Kendrick Lamar. This is a once-in-a-lifetime kind of album. It's the greatest musical accomplishment of this century. Kendrick Lamar is the greatest. He had been honing his skills on tremendous albums, obviously including Good Kid, Mad City, which is an album so good that it would be the peak of most rappers' careers. Kendrick had more in him. This album expands his sound palette far beyond that of any other popular rapper in history. He's using R&B, funk, and also jazz, free jazz, bebop, modern creative, and he crafts this immaculate and perfectly constructed monumental work of art. On it, he explores racial injustice, economic disparity, the structural attacks against black Americans, be it in the form of violence from police or concerted economic systems. But he also delves deep into his own psyche, exploring the concept of success, struggling to achieve artistic ambitions, depression, self-loathing, and self-love. There has been a movement in hip-hop that has allowed male rappers to more openly discuss their mental health, and Kendrick Lamar is one of the big players in that trend. This album is at once universal, cosmic, and also intimate, intensely personal. 
He brings in amazing collaborators, both as vocalists and to help craft the instrumental sound of the album. Features are used sparingly, with names like George Clinton, Snoop Dogg, and Rhapsody adding their voices, but the personnel behind the scenes is sprawling with the likes of Thundercat, Kamazi Washington, Flying Lotus, Robert Glasper, Ambrose Akinmuzuri, and so, so many more. This album is a celebration of almost every corner of the history of black American music. The scope of it is so immense, and for Kendrick to pull off an album this sprawling, with this amount of focus, shows what a genius he is. And all of that before getting to Kendrick's performances on this album. He is one of the most dynamic and versatile voices in the history of his genre. He's able to alter his delivery to perfectly match each song from his quick, biting flows, gravelly barking, drunken weeping, smooth crooning, character voices, everything. His use of voice, I think, is something that just doesn't get enough credit. He's such a skilled and and versatile performer vocally. Throughout the album, we get snippets of a poem, piece by piece at the end of tracks, until at the end, we get the full context. Lamar uses the audio from an old interview with Tupac Shakur, and he edits it to be a conversation between himself and the deceased legend. It's so seamless you might not even catch it when it first starts. They have this in-depth conversation, and they discuss their views on America and race and, and life. The jazz music starts to slowly creep in as an underscore to the conversation. It gradually crescendos. Kendrick reads something to Tupac and asks his opinion on it. The music swells and Lamar asks for an answer. And abruptly the music cuts, leaving Kendrick alone, calling out to Tupac, who doesn't answer. It's one of the single most powerful and emotional moments on any record in history. A brilliantly constructed moment that concludes a landmark album. An an album that opens up so many questions and explores so much territory. And then at the end succinctly announces there might not be answers. We might not always get the help we need. But in this album there is light to be found. There is hope. There is love. And above all else, this is just, musically speaking, a staggering accomplishment. We are all lucky to be alive when this album came out. This will, be, this will be studied for decades to come. So that's my pick for album of the decade. Those are my 25 favorite albums between this and last. I think it has been a, a, a really remarkable decade for music. I think it's, we've seen some, some truly great music, and I think we've even seen great music rise in the mainstream. I think we've been able to see pop music really start to experiment and expand and blend genres. I think that with the advent of streaming, there obviously are negatives that come along with it, but one of the positives is that really interesting artists can find their audience, and a lot of times that can mean that an interesting artist can produce something good and and it can become a a massive success. I I definitely, I'm not going to go off on a list of of honorable mentions, but I will say that uh, in my 25 through 11 I had no mention of the band Gorilla Toss, and I think that that's a mistake. I, I, it, it, it's hard for me to look back now. I don't have to and see what I should remove in their place, but Gorilla Toss should be on there. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about it more another time. But that's that's my thoughts on the decade. For quick review, my top ten of the 2010s. That was Saturation Two by Brockhampton. The full discography, the the demo and the EP Trans Day of Revenge, 
by Gloss, Girls Living Outside Society's Shit, Metamodern Sounds and Country Music by Sturgill Simpson, Atrocity Exhibition by Danny Brown, Sometimes I Sit and Think, Sometimes I Just Sit by Courtney Barnett, Kids See Ghosts, Dirty Computer by Janelle Monet, Run the Jewels 2, Secret Songs, Reflections from the Ear Mirror by No Bunny, and my pick for the unquestionable album of the decade, the greatest musical accomplishment of my lifetime so far, I think, To Pimp a Butterfly by Kendrick Lamar. Thank you very much for listening. That is going to do it for this week. This has been Music You Can Find. We are going to get back on our normal rotation Next week, uh, there's a holiday on Monday, so I probably won't have an episode out on Monday, but look for an episode Tuesday of next week talking about some new releases of 2020. We are going to dive right into it. Tune in next time.